to the kids' classes. If you have your own copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to read Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 16. So let's hear God's Word today. And He said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all, my, all your people I will do marvels, such has not been created in all the earth in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command to you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break the pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, for when... For when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited. You eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your passion, for your glory. God, we confess we would be much more comfortable with you pursuing our glory, of you making much of our name. And yet your word is um, not confused. It is unequivocally for your glory. Father, we uh, have enjoyed, we have delighted in all that we get to see in, in who you are and what you're like and your attributes throughout your scripture. God, I pray that as we consider you once again this morning, God, that you would stir our hearts to know you better, to trust you more, to better um, delight in you, to better enjoy you because of what we see in scripture. God, transform us, conform us to the image of your son. In his name I pray, amen. Envy is ugly. Is it not? So much so that we call envy the green-eyed monster. Now, I'm not exactly sure why we call it that. Uh, some people apparently think it goes back to Shakespeare. Shakespeare quote uh, in, in Othello, there's a line, Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Uh, but he, maybe he didn't come up with it. Maybe it was somewhere before that. Uh, some people think it has to do with something your bile duct. You know, the more you get angry and jealous and envious over somebody, you produce more bile, apparently, and that's green. So maybe there's something there. Uh, envy makes us sick, like being seasick. You get so envious of somebody, it's like you are just, ugh, you're green, you're sick. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's just that envious is, is we, we become like a monster. We, became, we become monstrous uh, when we are envious. And that just isn't human. And so we come up with something that is like that. And it's, you know, pretty unhuman and ugly. The point is, whatever, whatever reason we call it that, being a green-eyed monster is uh, ugly. Envy is ugly. That's the point. It's not pretty. Envy is, is coveting what others have, whether it be their looks or their career or their money 
or their family or something else. Envy is you've got something that I want and I'm not happy about it, right? That's what envy is, and it's always ugly. Uh, usually it comes from some place of insecurity, right? We're, we're insecure that you have something that I want, and I'm insecure that I don't have it or I'm not like that or something, and we, we kind of project that insecurity in a couple different ways. We could be we could just hide ourselves, you know, we, we, we hide back because we're insecure, or we just get angry and we lash out out of that envy and we hurt other people. That's one way we handle our envy. Uh, I, I read a really good quote, an author apparently named Harold Coffin said, envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. That's good. Counting the other person's, you got all those blessings and I'm counting those for getting the ones that I have. Envy is ugly. It's not it's not pretty, and it's always condemned in the Bible. Chapter after chapter, we read of people like Cain being envious of Abel's offering, Sarah being envious of Hagar being able to have a ch children. Similarly, Rachel was envious of Leah. Uh, Joseph's brothers were envious of the favoritism he got. Saul was envious of the praise that David got as he was winning all these battles, and so on and so on. It's always condemned. Envy is always condemned in the Bible. So then it becomes pretty startling to read a verse like I just read to you out of Exodus. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Wait, wait, wait. We just spent all this, you know, I just gave you all these reasons why envy is ugly. And yet here is God's word, God himself taking the name. If you followed in your, ex, in your copy, there it probably says, as most translations, whose name is Jealous, it's with a capital J. Jealous with a capital J. This is his name. This is an attribute of God that he is jealous. How in the world can something so ugly be attributed to a holy, perfect, righteous God? That's worth asking, isn't it? As you come across Scripture, this is not just one. We're going to go work and have a bunch of these. This is not just one you know, kind of offhand, whoops, Moses kind of didn't write it down right when God was speaking moment. This is clear through Scripture that God is a jealous God. And yet clearly he is not green with envy. He is not a monster. How can God be called jealous? Well, for one, envy and jealousy do overlap, but they're not always the same thing. So I'm going to try to distinguish this a little bit for you. Envy is a desire to gain or possess something that is not rightfully yours. So if I'm envious of, and we, and we use jealous that way, you know, I'm envious of something you have. I'm, I'm jealous in that way of something you have. But jealousy is used, and we use it that way, but we use it in a different way, too, sometimes. Maybe you don't think of it this way, but this is a right use of the word jealous. It is a relational desire to maintain exclusive relationship, exclusive favor in that relationship. So, it, it take just, a, just human examples of relationship. A healthy marriage or even engagement. Perhaps there's a season for, the, for a couple that, for one reason or another, they're not getting to spend much time together. Maybe it's travel, maybe it's work season, maybe it's end of the year, you got a lot of stuff going on, or beginning of the year, something's going on, and you don't get very much time together. It would be unhealthy if those two people in that relationship said, eh, I don't care. I don't really care if we get time together. On the other hand, it would be right, it would be good, it would be healthy for the both spouses to say, no, I, I'm jealous of all the attention that your work is getting right now. I'm jealous of how much attention you're, having to, you're, able, you're giving to them. I want us to have time together. That is right and good. 
Similarly, if in a marriage relationship, for somebody to be married, they stood before God and witnesses and they said they would forsake all others until death do us part. That's right, right? That's what marriage is. By definition, marriage is exclusive. So in a marriage, if you've got two people and one of the spouses begins to drift closer and closer to somebody else of the opposite gender and begins to cross a line and, and between friendship to, to more of a romantic relationship with somebody in that of another gender, and it's, and it's you know, no longer just friendship, it's, it's romantic, it, is, it would be unhealthy. We would be worried if the other spouse said, eh, I don't care. That's, that's unhealthy. That's not good. It is right and good for that other spouse to be jealous for the affection that they, of that spouse. Why? Because they, it's rightfully theirs. It is a right thing to be jealous for the attention, for the, for the, for the uh, a marital exclusive affection in a marriage. So clearly there's a difference between good and bad jealousy. Bad jealousy or envy is demanding something that does not belong to you. Healthy jealousy is seeking that, is what, that which is rightfully, rightfully yours and is being threatened. If it is being threatened, something that is rightfully yours, it is good and holy and right to protect it. And if we can see that difference, we start to begin to see why God would call himself a jealous God. It's his name. It is direct. It is clear. You can't get around God calling himself jealous. We are in our last couple weeks of God's attributes that we've been studying this fall. And I deliberately pushed this one toward the back so that it would build on all the awesome, wonderful things you would see about God, that we've said about God so far. And I want you to see that this is really good news. I want you to see the clarity of Scripture about God's jealousy. I want you to see it's really good news, and then it has implications for our lives. So I want you to see it's, God's jealousy is clear in Scripture that it's, it, it's good. It's a good thing for you and me. It's good and holy and right. And it affects our lives. So we've said God's jealous, but I haven't yet said what God is jealous for exactly. So Isaiah 48, the passage Lily read for us a moment ago, says this, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. And how should my name be, prof- be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So here's the the thing that's clear in Scripture I want you to take home today. God is jealous for His own glory. God is jealous for His own glory. Among the books I've been reading about God's attributes, one of my favorites by this guy named Matthew Barrett is a professor at uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he pointed out something about the ten plagues I had never thought about before. We've studied a few weeks ago that God is all-powerful, right? He is omnipotent. Why in the world did it take God ten plagues then to get his people out of Egypt and not just one? (laughs) Couldn't he have done it in just one? The answer is, of course, yes. God did not have to use ten. He didn't even need a plague. He could have snapped his fingers, right? He, He chose, for some reason, to use not one, not eight, but ten plagues on the land of Egypt to get his people out. And if you read through the plagues in Exodus, earlier from where we are in Exodus 34 this morning, you hear some repeated refrains about why God is doing the things He's doing. Exodus chapter 10 is one of those examples. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, 
and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell the hearing in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. And then here's the phrase I want you to hear. That you may know that I am the Lord. That you may know that I am the Lord. Lord in all caps, Yahweh, the great I am. The reason God moved through to bring the people out of Egypt in the, such a dramatic fashion is that for generations and generations, that your sons and your grandsons and all nations would hear about how great our God is. And it worked. We're talking about it today. And when the people got to Jericho, Rahab and others said, whoa, 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 before you come into the city, I know how great your God is. We heard what he did in Egypt. They knew that this was the one true God because of how he brought his people out of Egypt. He used 10 plagues because God is jealous for his glory. He wants his name, his glory, his fame to be proclaimed in all the world. This is why God does the things he does. He does them for his glory so that we would know that he is the Lord. And I tell you that we need to know that he is the Lord. The, one of the most foundational, fundamental sins of every human heart is that we want to be Lord. I want to be Lord. I want to be in charge. To be Lord is to be sovereign, to be in control. And for God to be Lord means I'm not. We are not. At the core of our hearts, the sin of Adam and Eve, if they committed in the garden, was the pride to say, yes, God gave me this command, but I don't want to follow it. I want to be the one that makes the rules. I want to be Lord. Who is Lord over your life? Which is another way of asking, who gets the glory? Whose honor are you living for? Who do you want to exalt at the end of the day? Who is Lord over your life? God makes it clear who is the Lord over all things, whether we know it or not. God is the Lord. He is jealous for His own glory. Exodus 20 starts the commandments that He gives. We the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Just one God. Second commandment is about how you worship the one true God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven or above uh, that is in the earth or beneath, that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There it is. The word jealousy is not just in some random arbitrary passage in the Old Testament. Here it is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Don't bow. Don't make idols. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship anything else. Why? Because God is jealous for His glory. God commands His people to have no other gods. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I created, why did he create us? For his glory. And this is not just Old Testament. So one of the biggest misconceptions of the Bible is there's the Old Testament God, and now we like Jesus better, he's the New Testament. Same God, same God, Old Testament, New Testament. John 17, 24, Jesus, the night before he's crucified, prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, they may be with me where I am. Why, why does he want them to be there? To see my glory 
that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is jealous for His own glory. So He tells us there can be no idols, no substitutes, no replacements. The context of, of our passage in Exodus 34 is kind of the, 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 the climactic moment, and, and by that I mean worst moment, of, of the Exodus story as God's people make an image, an idol for themselves, right after God delivered them. After all this dramatic ways that God had proclaimed, He is the Lord, and He is King, and He's reigning, and He's ruling over Egypt, and way better than all their gods, Moses comes up on the mountain for 40 days as God's giving them the commandments. And that's too long for the people to wait. They're getting anxious. They're getting stressed. And so they tell Aaron, Moses' kind of right-hand man, say, hey, make for us an idol so we have something to worship. And Aaron rightfully says, no, that's terrible. No, he doesn't. He says, sure, give me all your gold. And he fashions together a golden calf. Moses hears about it. God tells him, hey, you should go down the mountain, see what your, you know, your buddies are doing. He gets down there. He's like, Aaron, what have you done? He's like, I don't know. I just put the gold together, threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Like, ah, oh, come on, Aaron, you know. But the people bowed down and worshiped this calf after just being delivered out of Egypt. And this is where God is about to wipe them out. He's about to start all over. Moses prays for them. Moses prays interceding for them. Moses asks for the presence of God to be with them. God tells Moses, you can't see me. You know, because Moses says, I, I want to see your glory. He says, no, you can't see me. You would, you would get demolished if you saw my glory. He says, how about this? I'm going to put you in the cleft of the mountain. Kind of a little nook and cranny there, and I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to walk by you. And when he does, he says, I'm, you'll, see, you'll kind of see where I was, kind of behind me. And this is what happens when he does. He says, uh, that's where we get um, Exodus 34, uh, where he's 34, 6, where he says, uh, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That, that's the most, one of the most common, if not the most quoted Old Testament reference, quoted all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And then right after that is what we just read in Exodus 34, where he says, uh, what, what we read is, I'm going to remake this covenant. I'm going to make this covenant again. And I want you to know who I am. He says, observe this commandment. When you go into, when you go into the land, don't, make any, any, don't bow down to their idols, because I am a jealous God. Again, these are not arbitrary, random, obscure places in the Old Testament. This moment of Exodus 32 to 34 is, is this incredible moment where God's people could have been wiped out. And yet God shows them grace, He shows them mercy, and He shows them His nature that He is jealous for our affections. He is jealous for His own glory. That is who God is. Now, in making very energetic, enthusiastic hand motions, I shifted all my notes around. So... For the sake of your time and mine, making sure I don't skip a whole bunch. All right, there it is, Exodus 34, idols. There we go. So, it's on the bottom of page three, in case you're wondering. Here it is. Uh, so if we are going to be idol-making people, we're probably not going to do it in the form of a golden calf, are we? That's not your temptation and mine. But we still face the temptation to worship Idols. Many times those idols are bad things. We get fall into the temptation of chasing uh, any kind of addiction or substance or pornography or gambling, whatever else it may be. And we say, this is, this is what my life is revolving around. But then the other times we, we take good things and we make them ultimate things. Family, work, career, 
pursuing things in your job, we can take anything and make it an idol. And the, re- the way you know it's an idol is if, if you said, this, if, if the sky is falling, if everything's going wrong, I will make sure this happens. If everything else is going sideways, I'm going to make sure this happens. That's your idol if it's not God. If it's not worshiping God, if it's not living for God's glory, that is your idol. God is a jealous God, meaning He is jealous for your affections because they are rightfully His. God deserves. God has merited. We just sang He is worthy. He is worthy. He's the only one, Revelation tells us, to open the seal of the scrolls. This is this climactic moment of worship, and only Christ can open those seals. Only Jesus is worthy of our complete, unadulterated, above all else, worship. If we give it to anything else, it is idolatrous. God's relationship with us is exclusive. And that's why one of the main images, metaphors through the Bible for God's relationship to us is one of marriage. Perhaps you know the story of Hosea, where God sends the prophet Hosea to, deliver, to marry somebody he knows is going to abandon him. But he does it as a way of illustrating his relationship with these people. He says this is like, like a marriage, that she should be faithful to you. Israel should be faithful to God. We should be faithful to God. Now, Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I feel like that phrase is coming up a lot. The point is, he wants to know. He wants us to know how great he is. Even in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a metaphor for the way God has an exclusive relationship with his people. And anything we do that is outside of that is like a spiritual adultery. We are breaking this unique, mutually exclusive relationship. When we do not honor God, when we are faithless to God, he calls it adultery. James 4, you adulterous people. There's a real encouraging word from James, your your pastor Pastor James. You, You adulterers, that's what he calls them. Why would he call them that? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, he says? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. God is jealous for you. He's jealous for your affections. This is a right that God has to our affections. If we do not give it to God, then he is jealous for those affections. How does God respond when we practice spiritual adultery? That is, when we put anything else in our lives above God. How does God respond to that? One way God does it is in amazingly radically gracious, loving pursuit of his people. In Hosea, the the prophet goes after his wife, abandons him, and puts herself in slavery, puts herself in prostitution. Hosea goes to her and redeems her, has to buy her back and bring her back as his bride. It's a picture of God's amazing pursuing love to draw his bride back to himself. Sometimes he pursues us in this dramatic way of love, pursuing love. Other times, it's with a consuming fire. Deuteronomy speaks of uh, Deuteronomy 4 when he's giving people the law. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God and make a carved image. 
For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Again, not just in the Old Testament, that same phrase, Hebrews 12, 28, 29, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. For all Christians, for all people who believe in Christ, that consuming fire is a refining fire. It's a disciplining fire. Praise God that He loves us enough to discipline us. Amen? If God left us to continue pursuing our wicked ways and rejecting Him, that would be unloving. But He loves us enough to pursue us and to refine us and to discipline us. But for unbelievers, that is people who reject God forever, that their life and their witness, their beliefs, they reject God, that consuming fire is eternal. It is hell. God's Word is not um, wavering or waffling on what happens to people who've rejected God with their life. There is an eternity, eternity, forever, awaiting people who've rejected God, that they would stay rejecting Him. They will then forever not be with Him, but instead experience hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Jesus often spoke of hell, calling it the unquenchable fire, or where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched, or that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying, if you do not honor God, God is holy and just and righteous, and He is jealous for your affections. If you have rejected Him, you will spend forever in a consuming fire. God's jealousy and His wrath are clear in Scripture. Let us not play with God as if we can make Him, form Him into however we want Him to be. He is uniquely worthy of worship, and all who reject Him will spend all of eternity paying for that sin. We are invited to bow the knee in holy reverence and awe and worship of God. But let's not be confused if we don't accept the invitation, all knees will bow eventually, whether in worship or in total fear. How can God be both of these things? How can He be a love, pursue us with love, a loving pursuit of His people, and a consuming fire? Can He, can he be both of those things? Yes, just look to the cross. Look to the cross. As with just about every attribute of God, the cross is where we see His attributes the clearest. On the cross, Jesus, as God Himself came, Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus died. He died. We see just how committed God is to His own glory. We see just how radically committed He is, how jealous He is for His glory. On the cross, we see the, the extreme example of the sinfulness of man. We killed the only person who didn't deserve to die. All of us deserve to die for our sins. The only one who didn't deserve to die, that's the one we killed. We see that at the cross, just how sinful we are. But we also see at the cross the extreme example of His love, that He would die willingly for people who don't deserve it, for people who were against Him, and He went willingly to die for us. At the cross, we see the su supreme example of His wrath, this consuming fire and complete justice, that He was justified, that He, he was willing to absorb the wrath that for all who believe in Him, he says, I'll take the punishment in your place. He, becomes just, he shows himself to be just and the justifier. 
And because of the, we see all that on the cross, we see why those who reject Him would spend eternity apart from Him. They reject this incredible act of love and of grace and of mercy and of justice. And to reject that is to reject God. And we would spend eternity away from Him if we reject it. God is jealous for His glory, so much so that He would display it in power and in love on the cross so the whole universe would know this is the most glorious. Just as God in the ten plagues wanted every nation around to say, look, He could have done it with one plague. He could have done it with no plagues. But He got, brought the people out, this incredible redemption of the people out of slavery so that everybody would see this is the Lord. And look how amazing He is. So it was on the cross. So people for all around, for generations and generations, to the sons and the grandsons and after that and so on, that everybody would see, look at the cross, look at how amazing God is. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of all glory. God is jealous for His own glory, and the cross shows us that more than anything else. And I want you to know, this is really good news. It is really good news that God is jealous for His own glory. I want you to know, because some people come to this word and they say, jealous, I'm going to skip over those passages and that's hard to explain. It is hard to explain. I understand that. But we want to skip over that as if we're embarrassed. And I want you to know that God's jealousy is cause for celebration, not for embarrassment. God's jealousy for His own glory is something we should be applauding in God, not ashamed of and hiding from. We don't need to dance around it. This is something that God describes, the way God describes Himself, so we can enjoy that and delight in it as the good news that it is. Why, why is this good news? There, there is something deep in us, I believe. I think this is a part of God putting eternity into the hearts of all mankind. There is something deep in us that longs to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Does it not? Anytime you're a part of something big, I mean, maybe something somewhat trivial, you know, your team wins a championship. And it's the team you've been rooting for all along. And you're caught up in that and you enjoy doing that with other people. There's a sense of, yeah, we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Maybe it's just going to a concert or, or being part of some, you're really into some big pivotal election or, or something else with a, with, at work where you're saying, we, we, we worked together on this big project and we pulled it off. And yeah, we're celebrating that we did this and you're a part of something big. There's this desire in us to be a part of something greater and bigger than ourselves. And I want you to know there's nothing greater and nothing bigger than God himself and being in his family. There's nothing better than being a part of the glory of God, enjoying, delighting, and celebrating God's glory. That is reality. We, we long to be people of the truth, do we not? Nobody wants to live their lives hoodwinked, confused, unsure of what's true and what's right. The reality is there's nothing better than God. To know the glory of God is to know reality. It's to know truth. We want to know the truth. God being jealous for His glory is consistent with His holiness, is it not? If God was exalting something else as better than Him, He would cease to be God. He wouldn't be God. If God was lifting something else and saying, Hey, I know you're worshiping me. But I want you instead to look to this thing. This is what I want you to worship. That, he wouldn't be God. That's what we do because we're not God. Any praise that's given to us, we say, thank you. I want you to know I worship a Savior who's much better. Right? That's what we do with praise as Christians. For God to do that would make him not God. 
He is holy and right and just. It is good for him to seek, pursue the worship of his people because it's right, it's true. And it's the most loving thing God could do for us. The most loving thing he can do for us is to demand from us, command us to worship him. What, what is love? We did this a few weeks ago back studying God is love. Love is doing what's best for somebody else even if it costs you something, right? Love is pursuing the best interest of the other. So in marriage, to do the best for your spouse may look like doing the dishes when you don't want to, right? This, I know she's tired and she's got a lot of things going on. I'll do the dishes, all right? And in parenting, love for your children is sometimes giving them lavish gifts. This is how I show you grace and love to give you. It's Christmas. I'm going to give you, it's your birthday. I'm going to give you a gift. That's love. Sometimes it's disciplining them, right? It's doing what's best, whatever. This, this is a, a, a trait I see in you, son, daughter, that is unhealthy. And if you continue in this way, it's not going to, it's not going to help you in life. And we need to step in here and discipline you so you know what's wrong here. And that's going to be painful for everybody. But we need to do it. That's love. It's doing what's best for the others. So let me ask you, what could God possibly give you that's better than Him giving you Himself? We have said at length this fall how great God is. There is nothing better than a God who is triune, who is infinite, who is independent, who is unchanging, who is faithful, who is good, who is holy, who is righteous and just and loving and gracious and merciful and patient and omnipotent and sovereign and omnipresent and wise. What could be better than that? What do you want other than God and God has told you in His presence, Psalm 1611, there is fullness of joy. If we are living for anything other than God, we are living for a lesser joy, the most loving thing God can do is say, come to me, come and worship, come and bow the knee. There is no better place to go. There's nothing better that I can give you than himself. That is the loving thing for God to do. This is God's jealousy for his own glory, and it is for your good. The fullness of joy, not partial, not just a little bit, but complete joy is in the presence of God. We have this misguided notion that for God to be jealous for his own glory would make him sinful or prideful or arrogant. And people have walked away from God when they hear that he is jealous. A famous example is Oprah Winfrey. John Piper quotes her a lot, so we about this this story a lot. So she gets I get this, I see this a lot. She shares about her walk away from the faith. When she heard in a church service, I believe it was, a pastor said, The Lord thy God is a jealous God. She said, I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28 and I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is also jealous. A jealous God? A jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. And so she walked away from traditional Orthodox Christianity because she didn't believe that God could be jealous. Now, I don't know what all is going on. I'm not going to project my thoughts on what she was. But why, why would somebody be offended that God is jealous for our affections? Why, why, would, why would we be offended that God is jealous for His own glory? 
I think, deep down, we're offended that God wants the glory instead of giving the glory to us. Who better to get the praise? It's got to go somewhere. Who gets the credit? Listen, if, if somebody comes in this room, you know, we pick out somebody and say, this is the strongest prayer. I got this from uh, Matthew Barrett. I forget who it was. So I, I, this isn't original to me, but I, I'm quoting somebody else. It's, if we picked out who this person can, can bench press a thousand pounds and we say, yep, they are the strongest person. Everybody agrees they're the strongest person. If they say, hey, every time I come to church, I'll come a little bit late. I want you to pause what you're doing. I want you everybody to stand up and clap and say, you, you are the strongest person, right? right? And what, what, we would think that's ugly. <laughs> that's ugly to demand that kind of praise. Why? Because whatever they've done in life, their breath, their heartbeats are all gift from God. The strength to be able to work out and get to lift that much weight. It's all a gift. They aren't the, what's at the root of, of that thing is a gift from God. God created the life. Their origins. All that we have is a gift. So for any of us to take credit for anything is pride. What's the origin of it all? God. God's the origin. God's the uncreated one. He's at the bottom. He's at the root. There's no place to go deeper than Him. Anything else is pride. He is the one that's only, the only one that deserves to be centered on himself. God's God-centeredness is good news. That is good news. And it has massive implications for how we live. We, as Christians, should live jealous for the glory of God. Just as God is jealous for God's glory, we too should be jealous for God's glory. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. What are you, 